0: Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome to the 102nd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, Bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So, good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. It's U.S. Open week, baby. You're you're ready. Third major of the year. I'm pumped. Tory Pines. Tory Pines. Got you're ready. My golf shirt on. I'm ready to go. And um, it's almost the end of the quarter. Yes, and it's almost the end of the quarter too. So, uh, I'll be rooting for John Rahm this weekend because of what happened to him at the Memorial, and he had to withdraw from the tournament after being up by six shots, I think. Oh, so he was gonna run he had with that. It. He had that in the bag. So he's played good at Torrey Pines in the past. So hopefully he can uh, come out with a vengeance today. I will join you in rooting for him. All right. All right. Uh, before we begin, uh, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 16th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up a half a percent for the month and up 12.45 percent for the year. The Dow down 1.6 percent for the month and up 11.2 percent for the year. The Nasdaq Composite index up 2.45 percent for the month and up 9.2 percent for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 0.8 percent for the month and up 17 and a quarter percent for the year. Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, down 0.3% for the month and up 11.1% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.04%, the two-year treasury yielding 0.2%, and the 10-year treasury yield is sitting at 1.57%. Uh, big news and headlines current events from the week map g7 countries agreed to a two-part global minimum tax proposal last week that seeks to prevent a race to the bottom approach to corporate taxes and the games played to avoid taxes in one country by shifting income to the other and so on um, and while this proposal is far from implementation um, you know it's going to take years to fully flesh out and get through it so yeah you know I think the thinking behind this is, uh, you know, they don't want to have one country whose corporate disproportionately tax is benefiting super low and you have all these corporations moving you know, money over to there. And, you know, this has been a problem. Uh, and I put air quotes problem in the government's eyes for a long time, um,
2: especially within the eurozone itself. I yeah. know that, for example, you know, a lot of companies run their revenue through Ireland in the eurozone. I'm sure there's the tax reasons as to why. And that's disproportionately benefited them compared to other countries. And just take what's happening in the EU on the G7 basis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about corporate tax rates, um, not personal tax rates.
2: Correct. 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 Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Filings for initial jobless claims are hitting pandemic lows. They're down 94% from their peak last March. And 25 states have now announced that um, they are going to uh, end the extra federal benefits um, early. Um, that are paying, uh, you know, a lot more money not to work uh, right now. And this shift is expected to encourage more workers to reenter the labor force in the coming months. So we'll see if that does with the jobs numbers over the next several months.
2: And I'm glad we're highlighting this news point, because why is it newsworthy for our listeners? In my opinion, Mark, it has to do with getting these um, supply chains normalized. And in, in my opinion, and we'll see if you agree, I think labor is the biggest reason for the shortages in the supply chain. Yeah, we
1: need workers to do that.
2: And once people get back their mark, supply chains will begin to normalize. And in my opinion, these peaks of inflation on these on different areas, let's take lumber and copper, that stuff will start to normalize as people go back to work. Yeah. My opinion.
1: Yeah. And lumber has come in quite a bit. I think it was last week or two weeks ago it had its worst week of the year in terms of performance.
2: Yeah. I looked at the chart actually yesterday and we're uh, not fully back
1: to pre-April move higher, but we're almost there. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Latest home price data continues to increase, hitting all-time highs again, up uh, 13% over the past year, according to the S&P case Schiller U.S. National Home Price Index, and this is the highest rate of increase since 2005. Um, so there haven't been, <clears throat> at least right now, hasn't been a slowdown in rising home prices for the time being. Not seeing it yet. Um, Moving on to tweets, articles, and research that caught our eye from the week. Do you want to kick us off?
2: I do. So first, a piece I have for the listeners, Mark, has to do with a blog post from Compound Advisors on June 6th. The title of the post is, Should You Invest New Money All at Once, Over Time, or Only After a Bear Market? Well, the big thing I wanted to talk about today is a chart uh, that Charlie had in there from Compound Advisors. And this chart is on our show notes. And before I discuss it further, let's remind listeners, Mark, and how they can access this.
1: Yeah. So go to our LinkedIn page, our Facebook page, uh, or Twitter, uh, and that's at Jessup Wealth on Twitter to find these show notes.
2: So well, listeners, when you see this chart on our show notes, the title of the chart is Odds of Cash Outperforming the S&P 500. And underneath that, it says Total Return from 1928 through 2020. And what it does, Mark, is, again, it's the odds of cash doing better than the S&P 500 on a one-year basis, going back to 1928, 30% of the time, 30.6 to be exact.
1: Which is still not very good odds.
2: Cash will outperform the S&P on a one-year basis. So let's take it to two years. Cash only outperforms now 26% of the time. Three-year basis goes down to 23% five year 22.7 seven year drops down to 16.7 and then you get up to 10 years 16.2 15 years you're down to 7% of the time 20 years 0.8 and 25 years goose egg
1: so I think the you know the biggest thing that I take out of this is that if you're a long-term investor you know does it matter it doesn't matter
2: it does no. not matter.
1: No. And even and even if you're just looking out one or two years, thirty percent's not very good odds, in my opinion. Right? S- exactly. So what the moral of the story that I have that I would
2: like to convey to listeners, Mark, and I want your two cents on this, dollar cost averaging, in my opinion, is all for psychological purposes. Agreed. Agreed. You agree with that?
1: Yeah, because you know, It's obviously and it's even more psychological for people that have had large cash positions for a large amount of time, but it just helps to know that you're buying in at different prices. And again, you're automatically doing this in something like an employer sponsored retirement retirement plan, like a 401k. But yeah, like we talked about I think last last week, you know, there's been studies done on if you should invest everything all at once or you should dollar cost average, and if you're a long-term investor, usually investing everything at once makes the most sense financially. But as we've talked about before on this podcast, a lot of times no, you, you don't have to get to perfect in when you're doing personal finance. Um, you know, dollar cost averaging in my opinion for most people is good enough. If that psychologically makes you sleep better at night, then I'm all for it. It's just one of those things that doesn't have to be so optimized that it has to make sense 100% from a financial standpoint.
2: You said it perfectly. That's exactly what I was going to say. So we're on the same page with that. So I thought it'd be a good point to kind of bring out to listeners, especially for those who are listening who might have excess cash balances, who are thinking, you know what, I want to start putting some of this money to work. I'm afraid about doing it all at once. You know, again, if that's what it takes for you to take some action, do it. But I think, you know, uh, dollar cost averaging is not as important if you have a proper time horizon. All right. Next point. I got a couple zingers here. This one is we keep hearing about the market is at a 52 week high mark. The market's there. Can't go any higher. So we have a piece from Bespoke Investment Group on June 15th. This piece of research, research, in my opinion will reshape the narrative some have that the market couldn't possibly go any higher, right? So for the record, the S&P 500 made its 29th new 52-week high as of June 14th, just this year, okay? So I'm going to quote Bespoke, and listeners, there is a chart that is associated with this that you can find on our show notes The chart is a um, data points of the S&P 500 number of all time highs in a given year. Okay, so let me read this first. Quote, at the current rate, the S&P 500 is on pace for 64 record closing highs this year, the current pace mark, which would eclipse the total of 62 in 2017 and put 2021 into third place overall for the most record-closing highs in a given year. The record was 77 back in 1995, while 1964 ranks second with 65. While 64 is current pace, where the year ends could variably end anywhere. All it takes is a sell-off to knock the pace off track, while a string of higher closes could really add to the pace. Wherever the number ends as of December 31st, we've already been in a very positive environment for equities, end quote. Now I'm going to get to the punchline. 2017, we had 62 records on the S&P 500. How many times did you hear people say, possibly can't go higher, Mark? I'm not going to commit any money in this market. It's at a high. I'm not going to do that. And what happened since 2017, even including the COVID sell-off?
1: Yeah, we're up massively still. We're up massively. massively Absolutely. And unless you're a, you know, you're a wizard and you, you, know, you sold out there and then you bought back you know, a- after the 2018 decline and then after the decline in March in, of, of 2020 because people think that they can ultimately call the bottom – you know, you're you're still in cash, right? If you're waiting for markets to pull back because, OK, in March of 2020, it didn't pull back enough. So I didn't actually buy. So you're still sitting in cash. And, you know, in my opinion, all time highs are great. That means everything's going well. Times are good, right? Yep. It's the same thing. What if what if people said uh, after the 0708 financial crisis, the first time the market hit an all time high after that? What if they're like, I'm done, I'm done right? So you missed out on all those gains from 2012 to now. And where are you at? Yeah, I mean, in,
2: you know, what tends to happen psychologically for individuals with the mindset of, well, it's hitting all these highs, I'm gonna wait till the sell off happens. I would argue that most of the people with that mindset, when the sell off does happen, because a sell off eventually is going to happen, whether it's, tomorrow or it's going to be 3 weeks from now. I don't even think they buy at that time.
1: No, I don't think you do and what do you unless you put like a metric on it so it's like yeah, when every, it reaches this level every time it goes down 5%, I I invest 10% of my cash. If it goes down 10%, then I invest 25% of my cash. If we're down 25%, then I invest 50% of my cash. So unless you have a process like that and stick to it, stick to it. It's a problem.
2: So the moral of the story is When you see headlines about 52-week highs, that's not bearish.
1: Exactly. Don't be afraid. Okay. Don't be afraid.
2: Now, I got another zinger. I'm going to put some things into perspective. Uh, I'm getting a little sick of the whole, oh, we got so much debt. Oh, we can't sustain this. (laughs) I'm not arguing that the U.S. has a lot of debt. I'm not arguing that. Mm -hmm. You know what I am going to argue? how much we can sustain. So I'm about to put this into perspective. Let's hear it. All right. Get my soapbox out, baby. This data is from Bloomberg on June 3rd. Okay? It is a chart of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Now, this chart is also on our show notes. Okay? It shows right now total assets on the Federal Reserve balance sheet expanded by 0.4% to a record high of 7.94 trillion as of the end of May, okay? The Fed's balance sheet is now equal to 36% of America's GDP, okay? Let's put this into perspective, okay? You think we're bad? Let's talk about the Eurozone. There European Central Bank, their balance sheet is equal to 77% of the annual GDP of the Eurozone, okay? I'll take it even further. Let's take Bank of Japan, 134% of their balance sheet versus GDP. So the next time, and this will just set me off, the next time someone in our industry who should be educated on this says to a, Oh, you know, we can't we can't keep printing money like this, it's not sustainable, at a certain point you're right. But don't come across that it's like that right now. Yeah. When Europe is double where we're at. I'm just gonna say it very bluntly. We can print a lot more money than people think. Yeah. And we're nowhere even near the beginning of it.
1: Right, exactly. And and I think people forget that since the nineteen eighties we have been in a falling interest rate environment. If you put the 10-year US Treasury on a chart, um, the, the yield of the 10-year US Treasury, it's been in a steady downtrend since the 1980s. And I think the question becomes, you know, are we gonna be in an ultra-low interest rate environment for a prolonged period of time? And my argument is yes. I don't think we're gonna see interest rates over 5% within the next couple decades.
2: I would agree with that statement.
1: I would. Um, And again, I don't like to have predictions. So that's just just, it's just my take. So take it with a grain of salt. But I just think we're in a a newer environment where we are not going to see like much higher rates like we did in the early 90s.
2: Yeah. And again, you know, I want to be I want to say it one more time. This is not me saying that I don't have concerns about the debt level. This is an issue of how much can we print? How much can the Fed add to the balance sheet? And they're nowhere near the point of, of maximum saturation.
1: Yeah, I don't think so either.
2: Nowhere near it.
1: I don't think so either. I'm going to touch on that a little more here in a little bit. Oh, well, I'll turn it over to you. Um, the first thing that I had was just a simple quote from David Einhorn. Um, so he's a, a pretty famous hedge fund manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, what do you call a stock that's down 90%? A stock that was down 80% then got cut in half. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted—I like that because I just wanted to throw this out for people that just because a stock has sold off, that does not automatically imply that it's going to go back to its all-time highs or it's going to begin to rise again. So if you think back to the financial crisis again, uh, Lehman Brothers stock you know everyone you had analysts on the street you know when it fell from 100 to 80 they're like that's a buy fell from 80 to 50 that's a buy fell from 50 to 20 wow that's a screaming buy right now and then next thing you know they go bankrupt and the stock's worth nothing so the the friday
2: before s&p had a credit rating on them of a minus and they went bankrupt on monday
1: exactly So you can't just because everyone is taught that you have to you have to buy low and sell high, you know, when a stock's in a precipitous fall, watch out because it can fall 10 times more than you usually think it can, in my opinion.
2: I don't disagree, and I think, you know what, the other trap that I think people fall into is this, is this trap of historical valuations, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds about, well, this stock is only trading at a price to earnings of seven. It's dirt cheap. I should buy it. Guess what? It can get a lot cheaper.
1: Yeah, it can get a lot cheaper, and a lot of times they're cheap for a reason. Yep. Next thing uh, was an article written by Josh Brown on his blog, and it's titled This Is Why. Um, So I said I was going to read a snippet, but I'm going to read a lot of it because I think it was really good. Um, So he says, you can't buy a home now and seriously expect to be doing any kind of remodeling work with a straight face. The cost of everything is up 100% plus everything. You certainly are not walking into a car dealership and getting a deal on an SUV. You want it? You're paying top dollar. There are no factory rebates built into the leases because rebates aren't necessary. There's no supply and indefinite demand. Irregardless, take a moment to recognize the fact that this is why we've been telling you to invest. Us meeting fiduciary advisors who know what they're doing. All over the country, this is why. S&P 500 index has been compounding at 14% per year over the last 10 years. That rate of return, which was not expected by anyone and should not be expected going forward, turns 100 grand into 370 grand if you left it alone. There have been people doing their best to talk you out of taking stock market risk or convincing you that you could hedge it while still earning the same or better returns. This is now and has always been a fantasy. Risk-free reward is the domain of the charlatans. It only exists on Twitter, not in real life. (laughs) The stock market returns took your savings from 10 years ago, nine years ago, eight years ago, and kept them competitive with the prices in today's economy. They allowed your dollars from 2011, 2012, 13, to keep their purchasing power. In a moment like this, that's meaningful. You should be able to pay this year's living expenses and traveling expenses and eating and entertainment expenses without much aggravation so long as you've been invested all this time. And if you haven't, well, hopefully the lesson has been learned. Why am I taking the risk of volatility in the stock market? This is why. Prices in the re- real economy go up. Your money has to go up, too. So, you know, it just gets me back to thinking is that everyone is talking about this crazy inflation we're going to see in these higher prices. How do you I combat mean, it? I can't I can't How do you combat say it in another term is that's why that's why you invest over the past decade. You've had your money in the market compounding at a greater rate than inflation to have your money worth something when we do get higher inflation. You know, again, I go, I go back to it previous comments from podcast just because
2: you have a hundred grand in a savings account in five years the account might say a hundred grand but what that buys in goods and services is going to be a lot less than a hundred grand
1: yeah exactly
2: and so just because you don't see your balance move up and down in that savings account doesn't mean the real purchasing power of it is not going
1: down right so that's why it's it's just so important uh to Take that viewpoint on it because, you know, if you had, like you said, a hundred grand in cash back in 2011 and you did nothing with it, then, you know, what does that buy? I don't know what it is, seventy, eighty thousand dollars 80000 worth of goods into dollars. Sounds about dollars. right. So it's so important. It's so Absolutely, important sir. for people to wrap their heads around that and, and really understand why we're putting this money in the stock market in the first place.
2: I think it's good that you talked about that from Josh Brown.
1: So this is an interesting one. This is going to be, this might throw some controversy out there, but it's um, a blog post written by Ben Carlson titled The Future of Bear Markets. And I'm interested to get your opinion on this. Okay. So Ben starts off by saying the 34% Corona crash from late February through late March, 2020 lasted just 23 trading days. Those 23 trading days saw seven daily losses in excess of 4% along with five daily gains of 4% or more. And then it was done, off to the races as the stock, stock market took off and never looked back, reaching new highs a little more than 100 trading sessions later. The speed of both the crash and subsequent recovery caught a lot of investors off guard. I cannot predict the future, but I do wonder if the future of bear markets will be different going forward.
2: Ooh, I think I know where you're going with this now.
1: What if both crashes and recoveries are faster in the future? Here's the case for this. Technology is making everything faster. It's hard to believe people used to check the evening news to see how the stock market did in the not-so-distant past. Now you can track every stock known to man every second of the trading day. The repricing of assets happens faster than ever now that we all have the ability to trade, communicate, and share opinions from the supercomputers that fit in the palm of our hands. It's like the speed, on the speed limit on the markets just went from 35 miles an hour to 70 miles an hour, but many investors are still stuck in the 35 mile an hour mentality. The Fed is inextricably linked to the markets now. Considering the tens of trillions of dollars in the credit markets, the Fed's $13.7 billion portfolio is tiny by comparison. But if it's not the absolute dollar amount that matters, it's the fact that the Fed has set this precedent. Precedent. If the Fed doesn't bring the bazooka out, the mark. Excuse me. If the Fed doesn't bring the bazooka out, the market will likely force their hand. There's no going back now. So I think the point that Ben's trying to make is that every time we see the markets fall by twenty percent, it's going to be expected that the Fed steps in, lowers interest rates, provides money throughout the economy, get money flowing again. And if that doesn't happen, then we're in. In, in deep, you know what, right? Yeah, we've been trained. Um, the speed of the corona crash could also have psychological implications on how investors view future bear markets, at least for a cycle or two. If investors assume an implicit backstop from the government and the Fed, they will likely step in much sooner to buy during a downturn. This could mean 40 to 60% crashes that once lasted 24 to 36 months could be more like 20 to 40% bear markets that last 3 to 12 months. Nothing is guaranteed, but I do think a combination of faster markets, increased central bank intervention, and more fiscal stimulus could change the nature of bear markets going forward. So my question to you is, what are your thoughts, and is this the new normal going forward?
2: All right, so I'll tackle the timing first. I do think with information flow, sell-offs and corrections and rebounds are going to be quicker than historical. I would agree with that viewpoint. I will also say that um, because of the degree of how quick things sold off last uh, February and March, as an example, will still shock a lot of people. And it could cause people to still panic sell and not get back into the market. I think it's the quickness of these sell offs that's going to be the issue now. You know, we had multiple days where intraday, the market was down 10% mm-hmm. in a day, okay? Now, for people that don't have appropriate risk tolerance or time horizons, that will leave you speechless. And I think that is now the issue is how quick things sell off, not the recovery as much, how quick things sell off, scaring people out of the market and by the time they get back in, things have already recovered. So, I think it's I think it's going to be quick, and I'm concerned about people making Rash decisions during those time periods.
1: Yeah. And again, I, I'm not saying that we we can't get a prolonged bear market where, you know, we're down 30 percent off the highs and that lasts for two or three or a years. slow bleed getting us down but 30. If you think about it, just the flow of information is so much quicker. I mean, you can open up your phone and trade stocks in 30 seconds if you wanted to. We're back in the day. You had to call your stockbroker and then they had to put the order in and you were talking through it with them of what you wanted to do. So it took a lot more time to do that and place those trades. Yeah. And now, like he said, we have supercomputers that we can do this at a snap of a finger. So I think it is something that's very possible that we start to see swifter and quicker declines. And Maybe the recoveries will be the same way. Maybe they're not. But I just think that people need to be aware of this, that this could be something that's here to stay for a while.
2: Yeah. And, you know, before we kind of talk about the the, the Fed, which I think is the second part of your question, you know, when the market's finding that bottom in, you go back to February and March, as the market bottomed in hindsight on March 23rd last year in the year 2020, It was not certain that a week later that that was the actual bottom. Right. Right. And so as money started to flow back into the market, it's very clear as day now. But when you're back in that time period and we were in mid-April and I know we were and I'm going to I'm not here to spike the football on this, but it's a fact. Voice of reason talking about a V-shaped recovery. There were still a lot of naysayers in that market in the middle of April saying this is a this is a head fake dead cat bounce. Exactly. So you got to remember that it looks crystal clear in hindsight because it is. But when you're living through it, when the next one comes along, have a plan in place.
1: And those 23 days felt like a year.
2: I aged. Yeah. Yeah. I aged. That's where some of this white on my beard has come from. (laughs) That's where it came from. That's where I'm going to blame it.
1: Got it. Got it. Yeah. So and again, and. You know, we won't go too deep into the Fed, but I think it is very expected now. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, think
2: it's a good way of saying it. The Fed steps in. I'm with they, you, Mark. I mean, set,
1: They set a precedent, and I don't think they can back off of that right now.
2: They can't. And what they'd have to do is if they did in the next quote-unquote sell-off, it would be so painful for them not to act to prove a point. I just don't see it worth for them to do that. Right. Yeah.
1: So moving into the financial planning topic of the week, this comes from a article written by Christine Benz on Morningstar, who we've uh, quoted on the podcast before, and it's titled Sorry, You Probably Don't Have a Portfolio Emergency. And Christine tells a story about uh, a friend who asked her to look over his investments because he thought he had a portfolio emergency. So he thought his investments were way out of whack, but instead, Christine kind of uncovered what the real issue was. And she kind of tells this story. Okay. So she says, a friend recently sent me an email to tell me he was worried about his portfolio. He had a free consultation with an advisor on site at his workplace. And that person had spotted some problems. The low cost target date 2035 fund that he had invested in through his 401k was way too conservative for one thing. Meanwhile, the advisor thought my friend's rollover IRA parked in an S&P 500 index fund completely missed the boat because it didn't include small caps. The advisor's solution? A variable annuity. No oh, geez. My friend was freaked out. Did he truly have a portfolio emergency on his hands, as the advisor had suggested? His portfolio was a model of simplicity. The target date fund in his 401k, as well as the index tracker in his IRA. Portfolio emergency? I just didn't see it. I did see a bigger problem, though. My friend simply hasn't saved enough for retirement. He's in his late 40s, single, and together his IRA and 401k account balances add up to about 250000 Where the advisor had spotted an investing problem, I saw a much more mundane issue, a savings shortfall. What ailed my friend's financial plan wasn't going to be fixed by bumping up his weighting in small caps or getting out of the 2035 target date fund because of its 20% bond position. It most certainly wasn't going to be rectified by steering the money into a high-cost variable annuity. The real problem was that in order to avoid a meaningful reduction of his income in retirement, my friend needs to find a way to step up his savings and keep it up. He might need to entertain working past age 65. My friend's experience isn't unique. People often look to their portfolios and their investment selections to do the heavy lifting for their financial plans. That's not to say that asset allocation and investment selection don't matter, they absolutely do. But no amount of investment acumen can make up for a plan that didn't begin with articulating and quantifying a financial goal, then saving an appropriate amount, an amount for it. Relying on those levers that you control rather than the market has another key benefit. While saving more and working longer may not be fun, their contribution to your portfolio is guaranteed an assurance you simply don't have by investing in the market. Love it. So again, I think this is a thing that people get way too much in the weeds with, you know, how they're allocated in their in their 401k's while it is important. Yes, it is important if you have a plan, right? If you have a savings plan, to invest in these different funds, so you're well diversified and your asset allocation is in line, and not you don't have all your eggs in one basket. That's fine. But if you're in a like a a target date retirement fund, it's all automatically done for you, right? Um, so I think that you know we as advisors and in our industry need to do a better job of of focusing on the savings rate and focusing on the levers that people can pull rather than just the investment performance. Because that makes so much more of a difference, in my opinion, than whether you're in a small cap fund or a large cap fund.
2: I absolutely agree. And I think that, you know, she makes an excellent point, which is, you know, this individual was relying on the portfolio returns to do the heavy lifting. And that's a dangerous proposition. You know, when you're relying on, hey, I need this portfolio to make, I'm going to throw out a fictitious number, 10% so I can retire you know, that's that's dangerous. You know you got to focus on what you can control. You can't control the markets. As you've always said, you can control your savings rate,
1: right? And it's a simple lever to pull, right? I just think I think it's a great illustration,
2: because I think another thing is people who are planning for retirement tend to not want to face the reality of where they stand. Hence, they tend not to plan. Well, if I just don't analyze it, And I just kind of keep doing what I'm doing. I hope it works out. Bite the bullet, you know, either on your own or hire a professional. See exactly where you stand towards retirement. So then you can really make some educated decisions on if you need to change things, your savings rate, how you're invested. But just going through and is hoping it works out, you're planning to fail.
1: Yeah, and I'll throw this out there, too. I don't think retirement at 65 is a luxury. That's something that you have to earn to retire at 65. Excellent and point. And it's not easy to do. And it's that's not why, just a, a, a default. It's going to happen at that age. No, no, it's not. It's not a luxury. And you have to put in the work to be able to retire at 65. You know, it's not just something that's given to you. It's not a for sure fact just because you get Medicare at 65 yeah. and your full retirement age is somewhere between, you know, 66 and 70 that, you know, hey, I'm going to retire and be fine. You have to earn that. Especially earn with
2: longevity that. today.
1: Yeah. I mean, people are living a lot longer. Mm-hmm. You know, you. you know, I would absolutely agree with that. So I thought that was an interesting article and Christine always puts out good stuff. So wanted to put that one on the show. Um, anything else before we leave it here for the week? No, we're getting close to the end of the quarter. Um, I'll be
2: curious to kind of see how the market trades going into the end of the quarter after you know, it's been a volatile quarter, relatively speaking.
1: Yep, the Fed recent or just yesterday said that um, they see rate hikes, two possibly two rate hikes in 2023, mm-hmm. um, which sold markets off slightly. Yesterday. Yeah, and I think the members saying a potential for
2: next year on the board went from four people to seven people, being a chance there's a rate rise
1: in 22. Which is, pro- I mean, I mean, let's estimate that each rate rise is a quarter percent. So yeah, we're still we're still nowhere near.
2: My two cents really is yesterday a is a non-event, <clears throat> in my opinion. You know, if you're a market participant and you're heavy in the industry, if you were, quote-unquote,
1: surprised by yesterday, uh, then you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Yeah. My opinion. Yeah, it's. I think it's more, you know, media attention, news headline stuff than yeah. what actually really matters. And they in
2: my two cents, it, that was what happened yesterday with the Fed announcement is par for the course right now.
1: Yeah, agreed. Okay we'll leave it there for the week. And thanks, everyone, for coming back for the 102nd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. We'll see you next week, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on the social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public,